Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, the brilliant poet Maggie Smith. Maggie has a new genre-defying memoir out called You Could Make This Place Beautiful that's essential reading for every woman. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetInst.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. For people who have been in a long relationship and then it it sort of goes off the rails and ends, it's a different kind of grief from, say, widower grief right? Where, where maybe the relationship gets to stay intact, right? And sort of time capsuled, you get to maintain the quality and texture of those memories, even as you're grieving the loss of the person in your present life and in your future. And I think something that happens in divorce that we maybe don't talk enough about is the kind of like, I think they call it ambiguous grief, right? It's like losing someone who's still around, but not really, and not still around and available to you in the capacity that they once were. And so if you've been with someone for a really long time, you have all this institutional knowledge, right? Like all these private jokes and little songs. And it's like, who did I see? Oh, I remember seeing that movie. Who did I see that with? Oh, right. And so life becomes full of these little, it's like walking in a minefield. So says Maggie Smith, an incredible poet and teacher whose mastery of language is always stunning. She distills sentiments of motherhood, grief, and survival in a way that is equal parts relatable and beautiful. While she has published poems that touch such a collective nerve they've gone viral, namely Good Bones, her newest offering is a memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. And in it, she not only breaks the traditional memoir format, but she also breaks open her relationship and the way we imagine ourselves and our experiences as time passes. It is a beautiful book. 
Today, we discuss the ways that Maggie's memoir explores the disparity among gender roles and the collective damage caused by the patriarchy. Ultimately, through her story, she encourages us all to commit to a practice of self-love, introspection, and forgiveness. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Yes, you're a poet, and yes, this is a memoir, but to me, it's both and and neither. You broke the format. Yeah. <laughs> I went and broke it. You broke or, it and reconstituted or it. I, or I fixed it for myself so that it would be, you, you know, it's like someone hands you something that doesn't fit. You're like, well, I could not put this on or I can, you know, alter it so that yeah. it works for me. And so I, yeah, I, I guess I did sort of break it or I, I modified it. So what was the impetus for, for doing it? Just an itch or an ache or were you provoked? Oh, I mean, life is provoking, I suppose. Yeah. Experience is provoking. But no, I mean, really, when I sit down to write anything, I'm always thinking, expecting, and probably hoping that it will just agree to be a poem. <laughs> And this would not, you know, I mean, some things it's like the container will not work. And I write small poems, too. So it's not just that poetry is inadequate as a form for storytelling. It is not. There are plenty of poets who write terrific narrative poems, sometimes very long narrative poems. I suppose I could have made this some sort of, you know, book and verse. But that's just not that's not how it came to me, I really needed to be able to to talk to the reader. That's really the voice I had in my head was a conversational voice, which is not mm-hmm. quite my poetry voice. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great public service. I felt this way about minor feelings, too. And Kathy, that for people who are intimidated by poetry, and I count myself in that, I don't know why, but I, I always feel... I'm always concerned that I'm missing the the salient point or the bigger point. I feel like it's a great way to backdoor us in and to be reminding us that we can we can live here too. I love that. It's all part yeah. of my my ruse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Suddenly you're like, oh, I love. I mean, there are poems in the in the memoir as well that are stunning, and obviously the title comes from. A viral poem. I mean, how many people can say that they had a a viral poem? <laughs> a, a few, yes, a few. It, it it is a strange thing. It does sound sort of infected, doesn't it? It sounds problematic. We need new word for that. Yeah, <laughs> I, know. It, I know. What a resonant poem. We'll, we'll just say that. I I like that. Thank you. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. And first of all, that line. I'm out with a lantern looking for myself, which I probably just butchered. Is such a is that Dickinson? Yeah, I'm yeah. out with la- I'm out with lanterns looking for myself. What a beautiful way to start. Oh, it do- it's also problematic because once you let Emily Dickinson have the first words, <laughs> it's it's hard to live up to it. You've just you've set the bar awfully high on on page one on the de- you know on the epigraph page. It's a beautiful vision though to set. And I think it's it is the, it's the right it's the right epigraph because it feels like as you are moving throughout the book and there are recurring questions that you come back to and answer in an evolving way. The book itself, again, defies categorization. And anyone who's listening who hasn't read it yet, it's 
slight and heavy and pieced apart and yet complete. But it's it's a very different reading experience. Like people, I think, will be like, oh, I can do that. I can do this and then sit with it. You know? Yeah, I I love that. I mean, I, I think I it was a different writing experience. So it makes sense to me that that it's a different reading experience. And I, you know, I approached it as a poet because I don't know how to do it any other way. Like I re I really do enter every writing project as a poet. I probably email as a poet. And so, you know, sitting down to try to tell a larger story and give backstory and context. And, you know, contextualize different parts of my life. You know, I I knew I wouldn't be able to do it in poems properly, but I knew I wanted to do it poetically because that's who I am as a writer. And I didn't want to try to write this book as someone else. You know, I had to come to it as myself. And so I'm a whittler. Like that's yeah. how I work. I write small. So the only way I can write long effectively as myself is to write small many times. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. And so I think people when you pick up the book, some pages have a paragraph, some pages link together into little vignettes and stories, but it's the pacing of it is highly unusual and and fun. And it's this Throughout the book, you come back to this idea of yourself or all of us as nesting dolls mm -hmm. and revisiting these earlier iterations of ourselves and our marriages, right? Because the book is ultimately about not even the dissolution of your marriage. It's about the end of your marriage, right? There's no, there's no processing. It's just over, except the post-processing. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, there's and, and the post post processing. I mean, that's that's also the funny thing about memoirs, like the book ends and the life continues. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of the trick of it. But I, yeah, I guess I would say the sort of like crisis that sort of created the spark of the book was my marriage ending. And in some ways, the book is sort of the it, it's sort of the story of the opposite of a midlife crisis, because I was thinking about the idea of crisis you know, like, what is that? It's emergency. It's like some bad thing happening. And for me, and the epigraph, that Emily Dickinson epigraph, I'm out with lanterns looking for myself. It's really about, the book for me is really about coming home to myself. And unfortunately, what spurred that thinking and processing and kind of what spurred that was a crisis. It was the end of my marriage, mm -hmm. but it put me into the opposite of crisis, which is sort of repair, recovery, return. Thank goodness. I mean, if only we could get to those places without the crisis, if we, if we could just skip over the crisis parts and get to the place where we kind of can figure ourselves out in midlife. But for me, that, that was the necessary upheaval that gave me the opportunity really through writing this book to kind of figure out, okay, how did I, you know, to quote David Byrne, how did I get here? Yeah. One of the really, another sort of theme, and maybe I was just paying attention to it, but I feel like it's a word that you come back to again and again and redefine and reimagine is this idea of betrayal. And mm. I'm going to read to you a short section from your book. You write, here's the thing. Betrayal is neat. It absolves you from having to think about your own failures, the way you didn't show up for your partner, the harm you might have done. 
Betrayal is neat because no matter what else happened, if you argued about work or the kids, if you lacked intimacy, if you were disconnected and lonely, it's as if that person doused everything with lighter fluid and threw a match. Sometimes I wonder if there had been no postcard, no notebook, would our marriage have survived? I don't know. That's the truth. It's so beautiful because one of the definitions of betrayal is revealing what is hidden, I want to say, but it's Mm. this revelation of, I think, often things we already know, right? But we just choose, it's inconvenient to know or see or go there. And so that idea of, I wouldn't even say it's that we're complicit in our own betrayal, but sometimes we are, right? I mean, I, I suppose we can be. And and the way that I was thinking about it as I wrote that was really about just having a lot of personal accountability in my own life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so not ever being able to sort of neatly say or finger point things didn't work because this happened or things didn't work because this person behaved this way or things didn't work because this person made this decision. But to really look at the way that all marriages, partnerships, family systems, mother-daughter relationships, working relationships, crazy chaotic friend group texts, frankly, are <laughs> co, you know, they're co-created systems. Yeah. Nothing is nothing is handed to us. So if if in a, you know, any relationship sort of goes off the rails, Is it easy if there is some sense of betrayal or dishonesty or something big, you know, that happens to be like, well, that's why. And then to kind of, you know, wipe your hands of it and and be and be absolved by that and not actually take time to reflect and think, okay, but also this is also true. Mm -hmm. And also this other thing is true. And also I'm not a perfect person. And also there are a lot of things that probably led up to even that happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I can only speak for myself and I can only take responsibility for my own actions. And so I'm not someone who really wants to sort of like (laughs) blame myself for things that, that have happened in my life, but I do want to take responsibility when, when I need to, Mm -hmm. we need more of that. I mean, I, I feel like the world is full of people who don't want to be accountable. Like, I don't want to be one of those people. (laughs) I agree. And I feel like anger, my book, which comes out a bit after yours, but it's in conversation with your book in a lot of places in interesting ways. It's about the seven deadly sins and women. And one of the sins is anger and the sublimation of our anger, often anger that's righteous and need stating and boundary asserting, but the way that we repress it in order to retain relational equanimity, really, or status or calm. And then again, how easy it is to find something, someone, some situation in which to place that anger, because Mm. it's so uncomfortable to own it and process it ourselves. And then what's lost when we don't, because it's full of information, really good information. And your, your rage, sort of in the aftermath, for for good reason that you felt towards your husband for moving away, but then internally, sort of that internal rage as you're processing what I think will feel very familiar to a lot of women, where the invisible labor was made painfully visible when I left the house, to quote you, in a dual career home, this idea that 
teaching and writing poetry should always be sublimated to the needs of the house and your children, whereas there was no expectation that your husband, right? We yeah. talk about that a little bit, like some yeah. of that sort of, because I, I understand it. I think many women understand it, that just sort of seething frustration that like, of course, you're the one who shouldn't be at a conference. Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of, a lot of relationships, particularly when there are children involved, there is one person who we think of as sort of the primary caregiver. And in a cishet marriage, it's usually the mother. And in a lot of those relationships, the primary breadwinner, not in all cases, but often, I mean, we're, I'm still earning 70 cents, 77 cents on the dollar. So the odds are <laughs> it wouldn't be me. So not being the primary breadwinner. And so what kind of power imbalances happen in homes where one person out earns the other and there are children mm -hmm. who need time scheduling, who have sick days, who, you know, have a lot of looking after. And so who naturally would be the sort of default person to do all of that work. Now, that said, the, the sort of other issue is like, how do we value creative work? Mm -hmm. And, you know, culturally, how do we value painting or photography or dance or writing as opposed to how we value banking or insurance sales or pharmaceuticals or law or medicine? And some of that does have to do, I think, with the financial piece of it. But I think there's something else to it. Whereas if your job seems too pleasurable, mm -hmm. it is treated like hobby. Yeah. And, and so I, I think I kind of ran into both of those issues where I was a primary caregiver in a, in a two worker home and my job seemed like a lot more fun. Yeah. And a lot less quote unquote work. So, yeah. And I, and I know that's something that a lot of people will relate to when they read this book. Like I, yeah. whether they're still married, divorced on their second marriage, not married at all. Just, you know, I think that even if they're not partnered at all, they will be like, Oh, that, that reminds me of my parents or my neighbors or my sister and brother-in-law. I think that dynamic is something that we have not outgrown in the 21st century. No, but I would say it's it's buried deep in our psyches and the, and it's a cultural constraint as well because and even though I'm married to like a lovely guy who's an, a really good father, I'm out earn him. And yet often and this is internalized sort of in me and it's in but it's in the culture, you know. Oh, the, yeah. the school oh, yeah. asks me to volunteer. They don't ask him. There's an expectation of me as a mother that's very different. And whereas he gets accolades for doing half of the drop-offs, no one is giving me props. Nope. <laughs> nope. And so it's beyond any household. It's not something that we can just re-engineer through wages. And I think you're right about sort of the cultural appeal of creative work and how it's like, that can't be work. It seems too fun for mm -hmm. sure. But it's also, as you know, brutal, <laughs> brutal, at times, wonderful and brutal. But I think it gets to this other deep point that you speak to. And I just 
heard Gloria Steinem talking to the, about this as well in the context of her own mother, of this idea, this cultural idea that being a mother is the end-all be-all and that mm. there's some sort of affront that you're delivering to your children when you suggest that that's not enough as an mm. identity. Because <laughs> it's not. And no child actually wants it to be. I really don't think that. I really no. don't think that they want that either. No, they don't. It's freeing. Because also then what does that mean if you are a daughter and you don't think that you want to have children? What does that tell you about your worth and possibility as an adult? If you are not yep. interested in replicating your family system, I think it's disastrous for women, but also what I'm modeling also for my son and what he will later expect from a partner. So this, this is something that like these are conversations we need to have loud and often, I think, yeah. like loud and often. And you write, yeah, I'm dog-earing a realization in my mind now. I don't think fathers are asking themselves these questions. Fathers don't feel guilty for wanting an identity apart from their children because the expectation is that they have lives outside of the home. I'm starring and underlining this fact for future reference. <laughs> With Sharpie. <laughs> yeah, I just, it's true. It's the like, you don't get a pat on the back for baking all of the class Valentine's Day treats. But probably if you were the father, you might, there might be a look of surprise. And oh, you also change diapers. You also push a stroller. You also mm -hmm. do, you know, orthodontist appointments. No, I'm very used to to sort of being the the go-to for all of those things. But again, accountability, I took on all of those things willingly. No one said, here's the contract and you will be handling all doctor's appointments, all dental appointments, all baking of treats, all packed lunches, all, I mean, that was not the way that it was. That's what I witnessed in my home. Mm -hmm. I, witnessed a, I witnessed a father who handled car repairs, snow removal, you know, mowing the lawn, <laughs> the occasional meal, it was usually tacos or something on the grill, you know, teaching us to drive. But most of what I would consider the sort of real caretaking, not of the house and objects, yeah. but of the people inside it, the meals, the laundry, the dishes, the volunteering, the homework help, that was all my mom. And so that was something I, you know, in processing my own marriage and end of it, I had to sort of sit with that and also be accountable for all the stuff I carried in mm -hmm. and took on myself willingly without having anyone's, you know, sort of browbeat me into doing it. Yeah. And it's hard. This is hard, hard work to push against this. I mean, my husband and I were, were talking and laughing, but his his mom had come to visit. And every time she comes, she's always like, he's giving them a bath. Like his dad never gave him a bath. And I'm like, no trophies, no trophies. I love yeah, you. No. no trophies. And <laughs> invariably he'll make, he makes really good spaghetti and meatballs. That's his thing. And he does it, as you said, like once a month, she'll just be sort of amazed. And I'm like, stop, stop, stop. And my husband's very aware of it too. But I'm like, this is, this is part of why... <laughs> We're yeah. in this perpetual bind that this is like such a celebratory moment, whereas this should just be what's expected, right? Yeah, there's a lot of undoing. 
and sort of untangling, I think, that has to happen in like the family system. And we're yeah. maybe untangling like a few threads every generation, but it's like a big knot. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like we're we're starting, right, to sort of chip away at these at these things. We're starting to make some progress, but like how long <laughs> yeah. will it be? And will it ever really get to a place where it's it does it's not asymmetrical? And my gut instinct is we will not. Mm. It's so ingrained that I'm not sure we'll ever you know, collectively get to a place where it is not asymmetrical. It'd be nice if the asymmetry were something closer to, you know, 60, 40 instead of 80, 20. And maybe that's progress enough. But I think awareness is a gift. It is a gift. And just allowing it all into consciousness and then being aware of how we, I mean, this is, this is what my, my book is about is like what we're, what we police in ourselves and in each other and how we are continually to sustaining and maintaining these systems that Mm. we're not really conscious that we've bought into. So like the, most of the parenting conversation, the conversation we're having right now falls into sloth and this idea that women are, we're so driven in every sphere of our life to try to meet everyone's needs with, not a lot of room for rest. And this idea of like, anytime I'm, I pause, there's something else I should really be doing for my children, for my house. Oh, I, I feel that. We're also, I think, culturally celebrated for yeah. our burnout. <laughs> yes. And our you know, busyness. Like, yeah. Yes. Like, in, in, like, if the goal is quote unquote, like intensive parenting, And that we can agree that most of that intensive parenting, that really hands-on parenting is happening asymmetrically because mothers are doing most of that. I know I'm not alone in sort of having the realization in midlife, like, where did I go? You know, so many people my age or around my age are caretaking children caretaking perhaps spouses in one way, shape or form, whether we think of it that way or not, caretaking aging parents, and also trying to manage our own professional and creative lives. It's so much. And then if we sit down and have a bag of chips and someone comes in, it's like the guilt. I've been traveling every week for the past two months. While I usually have a good time when I'm on the ground on the other side, I actually get really homesick. I miss my family, I miss my cats, and yes, I really miss my bed. So much that I try to take it with me. No, I'm not someone who carries a pillow through the airport, though I've thought about being that person, but I do bring the joggers and pajamas from my favorite bedding brand. Yep, I'm talking about Cozy Earth whose sheets are made from viscose from bamboo. They are indescribably soft, so soft. It's a bed hug like no other. And while I wouldn't swap sheets in a hotel, I would consider packing these for a longer Airbnb stay. They even make a set with a travel bag because they are that cozy. And I really, really prioritize sleep. Now I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas 
Meanwhile, Cozy Earth also makes pillows, blankets, and more. They make their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye towards quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. Want to rest easy on vacay? Take a trip to CozyEarth.com thread. Then type in my personal code thread at checkout and you'll get an exclusive 35% off. That's promo code thread for 35% off. It's my way of saying thanks for listening. Oh, and one favor, choose podcasts and the survey after ordering and then my show from the drop down menu. Thanks and happy sleeping. The guilt is real, but I think that, and maybe I'm more hopeful, maybe a smidge more hopeful than you, that I think that as we start to have these conversations and as women start to, if if we can develop a common language or awareness around this and start talking about it and supporting each other in our agreement that this is not fair or not Mm -hmm. equitable or not enough – I think we find somehow the stamina or strength because I think a lot of what we've seen, and this is definitely getting better, but sort of these wars, right, between quote unquote stay at home moms, working moms, where which is a disservice on all sides. And there's so much envy there and there's so much shame. And meanwhile, we're all struggling. And and I'm sure you would agree too, like some of these things which are so essential, really, parenting. It's not, it's not that complex, maybe, even though the world is so complex and kids are so complex, but we continue to meet complexity with more complexity. Mm. I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who is a PhD in sort of child development, and she's like, it's really very simple. And she, you know, she's driven nuts by the complexity that we're creating socially around parenting, which then grinds us all. Yeah, I mean, their their needs are fairly simple, if you think about it, like the yep. basic needs. And I, I agree. I mean, I, I guess I'm hopeful that, that the conversations will move things a bit. I will say I had, uh, who will remain unnamed, a male acquaintance reach out to me who, who got an arc of the book and sort of read an early copy. And he is a physician. And he <laughs> sent me an email and said, you know, basically... I sat down and had a conversation with my wife about her dreams, her goals, the sort of like balance of who's doing what for our, you know, teenage kids in our house, how much I work, how this is all shaping out. And they came to some sort of like big realizations and some big adjustments and shifts going forward that they're going to try to implement. And he said, I don't know that we would have had that conversation if I hadn't read this book. And I will tell you, I did not imagine a male doctor reading this book and having a conversation with his wife about her, you know, quote, spreadsheet of tasks Mm -hmm. and what, how, how things might've shaped up differently. And so just in that, it does give me hope because Women alone, we cannot be having these conversations. Mm-mm. Absolutely not. It's not going to work. If we can't get our partners on board with these conversations, 
we're just going to be spinning our wheels and feeling probably really resentful, which is maybe the most toxic thing in a relationship ever, I think is resentment. Yeah. So, well, going back to betrayal, which you come back to sort of again and again in the book, you know, betrayal is neat because it is absolving. And when we think about even these dynamics, right? And and there's this feeling of of sometimes betray- a different type of betrayal, but that it's like, it's the men and the men are doing this to us. But it's easy to sort of, and I see this all over the place and it's understandable to sort of be like, it's these guys, these guys, patriarchal guys. I'm like, no, it's a bigger than that. It's a bigger it system. It's, it's, this yep. isn't about blaming anyone's partner or husband or brother or father. This is about understanding the ways that culture programs us to abide by these rules. It's not, but I agree, men have to be engaged in these conversation and they have to recognize it in themselves and work to change it. And there's good good things for them. I think we're, what we're seeing culturally is the way that patriarchy is destroying men as well. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, yeah, they're victims of it too. I mean, I think yes. that's, that's, that's the something really important to consider. And I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's, it's funny. Most, I would say most of the men I know are really present parents. Most of the men I know are really supportive partners. Most of the men I know are not, you know, drinking a martini and reading the paper at the end of the night while their partner (laughs) dusts under their feet and, you know, lifts up their (laughs) shoes to run the vacuum cleaner. I mean, that's not really a lot of what I'm seeing but the system is still in place to congratulate that man for baking mm-hmm. a glass treat and not the the person who we expect, fully expect to be doing it. And we're all carrying that. Like women mm-hmm. are carrying that too. And that was sort of one of the, the tougher reckonings for me of sort of writing this book, because one of the things that I think memoir in, invites us or allows us to do is sort of like make difficult connections between Mm -hmm. pieces of our life, you know, past and present and sort of contextualize things. And in a new way, part of that for me was really having to take a look at myself. Like nobody Mm -hmm. heals by blaming other people. Yeah. That's not how we, that's not how we heal from things. It's not actually, I don't know what lesson I could possibly learn about my own life by blaming the actions of others. It just, it does not happen. Like the only way I'm going to be able to do better by myself is to look at myself and what choices I've made, what I could do differently, not in a sort of self-blaming way, in a very, I think, self-compassionate way. Like, how did I get here? And now, now what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the, this is where the nesting doll is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am I'm carrying so many little versions of myself nested inside this this 46 year old human being, you know, and and I, I like the idea of sort of carrying the earlier versions of yourself with you. I think there's a kind of tenderness suggested to that, maybe even a kind of maternal quality suggested in that and that I'm not trying to erase earlier versions of myself, even the ones who maybe didn't make the best choices. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to disown them. I'm not trying to 
to hide them away in some other space. Like I, I have all of them here with me and I'm considering all of them as I make decisions in my life now. Yeah. And there's, there's something to that too, where you talk about grief, the grief of the, the loss of your, your husband or the departure, the divorce as a type of grief, which I think is very resonant for people, the loss of memory, right? Like you lost your, and anyone who's had any sort of breakup can relate to this, where suddenly you don't have anyone to re-remember trips or moments, or those moments become too painful to reprocess. And it's hard, right? And so, I mean, how do you how do you think about that? Like the early years with your children and clearly there was a lot of love in that relationship. So how do you, how do you carry those nesting dolls? Therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I mean, I, you know, I'm being facetious a little, but you know, there's a lot of, you know, for people who have been in a long relationship and then it, it sort of goes off the rails and ends. It's a different kind of grief from say widower grief, right? right? Where where maybe the relationship gets to stay intact, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of time capsuled. You get to maintain the quality and texture of those memories, even as you're grieving the loss of the person in your present life and in your future. And I think something that happens in divorce that we maybe don't talk enough about is the kind of like, I think they call it ambiguous grief, right? It's Mm -hmm. like losing someone who's still around, but not really, and not still around and available to you in the capacity that they once were. And so if you've been with someone for a really long time, you have all this institutional knowledge, right? Like all these private jokes and little songs. And it's like, who did I see? Oh, I remember seeing that movie. Who did I see that with? Oh, Right. And so life becomes full of these little, it's like walking in a minefield where Mm -hmm. chances are if you've spent, you know, 15, 18, 20, 25, 30 years with a person, at least one out of five thoughts or memories you have. I'm just making that statistic up. I'm not a math person. (laughs) Don't hold me to that. I'm a poet. No one needs me to do math. But I do think it's a high percentage. If I really, if I wrote down every thought I had or every memory or every song I heard or anything like that, a fair amount are going to be connected Mm -hmm. to that relationship. And so I joked therapy, but honestly, kind of dealing with that grief and with cognitive dissonance, right? Like if this is true, how is that all true too? Yeah. And if that happy time was real, then how the hell did this happen? But if this is real and happened, then does it just sort of like negate everything that came before or only to a certain point? Like, do I get to keep any of it intact or does it just sort of burn, like sort of clear burn and all the way back to the very beginning. And I actually don't have a neat answer for that, which is yeah. why, you know, I'm still processing it and probably will be in some way, shape or form for the rest of my yeah. life. Not that that's a fun project. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's, I can imagine, and that's an important nuance. My brother's a, a widow and we 
reprise. He was married to a man who was also my best friend. And so there's joy in going back into those memories and reprising those stories. And like Peter is there. That's where we, there's a a point of connection. But I can imagine if those happy memories are now occupied by someone you are alienated from, you potentially dislike or even hate, like there's hotness, right? There's you're not like, let's go. I want to go back to Italy with my ex and think about that amazing meal. You don't want to be there. Yeah. 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 It's hard. And yeah. I think probably a lot of people have that, whether it's estrangement from a parent or, you know, a divorce situation or even just that friend that you lost touch with. And now it's too awkward to even reach back out. And so all of those beautiful memories are also sort of, they're dual now, right? Like they're not just happy. Mm -hmm. They also have this other sort of shadow side to them. And so, yeah. And I also want for my children to be able to remember things positively that we did at one time, remember positively and be able to say, Oh, remember the time we went to the beach and you found the, fill in the blank, you know, Oh, remember the time and not let the sort of present situation taint everything. You know, I'm I'm really trying to sort of do some recovery yeah. of, of memory and object and, and try to like lift some things at least up out of the, the muck of it, you know, yeah. as much for their sake as for mine. And I know it's not always possible, but yeah, finding some sort of path to, if not friendship, at least equanimity so that it's not so stingy. Yeah. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed-release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com 
thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. One thing I really appreciated, and, and obviously I read a lot, and I read a lot of memoirs, and I, I love the category, but there's often, I read some mem- memoirs where it's, maybe it didn't need to be so long, or didn't, it's, it's what I love about your book is... <laughs> it, it was a meeting that could have been an email. <laughs> Potentially. I think yeah. some, some, bo- some people have incredible stories, and that in of itself drives the book. And I think that your book... In, even by virtue of just being such a different format, there's some memoir. Sorry, some memoir in my book, but it's not a memoir. It's it's supporting. It's my relationship to these sins or how they've shown up in my life. You call it the material, which I love. Mm-hmm. But it's this like, how do you make it? You talk a lot about how are you making sort of this disaster heap of your life in that moment <laughs> useful, right? And I think you do an admirable job of actually cracking open different conversations. Like it hangs in a lot of closets. Maybe yeah. that's a really weird metaphor, but it's this like I'm you're here you're for o- it. <laughs> you're open you're you're opening doors all over the place with your quote unquote material in a way that I really appreciate, particularly in its succinctness. It's personal, but it's universal. You write, the question I keep asking myself as I write this book, the questions I keep insisting upon is this, how can this story, this experience be useful to anyone other than me? How can I make this material into a tool you can use? And I love that. I mean, was that a driving question for you? Like, what is, what's the point of sharing this if it's not useful? I think that voice is the quiet yet sometimes loud voice of my inner critic, which is mm. the voice, the voice when writing, when we write about our lives in particular. And I think this, this may also be gendered when women yeah. write about their lives. There's a little voice inside you. If you're lucky, it's a big voice. If you're not, that says who cares. Right. And so the, the sort of antidote to who cares is, well, maybe I can make it useful to someone else, in which case it's a value add. Right. And so there's something kind of double sided about that part, which is, yes, I want this. I want this book to mean something to someone other than me. I don't want it to be self-indulgent. I want it to mean something to someone else. But the, the sort of flip side of that is it doesn't actually need to unfold into a pocket knife. Mm hmm right? For it to be useful. You, you don't actually need to use it to swat a fly, though you could if you needed to. <laughs> this is funny. Yeah. You know, you could you stack a few up if you pre-ordered several copies and use it as a footstool or a booster seat? You could. But it, it doesn't actually need to be that because I don't give my poems jobs, you know, when yes. I'm sitting down to write a poem, I'm not thinking, poem, you better go out there and do some work in the world. I'm just describing this tree, describing this feeling, trying to like articulate the quality of light through the window mm. at that particular moment. And with poetry, for some reason, that's always okay for me. I don't ever feel like I need to make a poem do or be anything for anybody other than me. And I think there's some little bit of like fear and and maybe it's also part of part of the inner critic is also that sort of like inner imposter syndrome where you're you know for me venturing into a new genre and perhaps reaching different readers 
and and actually sort of asking myself like what right do i have who do mm-hmm. i think i am and on the other hand if if you're living your life so small that you never ever ask yourself who do you, who do i think i am maybe you're doing it wrong like mm. you know like living a little bigger is is maybe not the worst thing for us oh maggie it's so gendered it's so funny i mean again not to project myself into your book, but I'm like, Please oh, do. we're having That's- these conversations. Yeah, because one of the sins, as I'm sure you know, is pride. And that chapter is all about this idea that women have that not to be too big for our britches, yes. the fear of being seen, fear of narcissism, fear of appearing to be narcissistic at all. Again, that idea of who cares and how treacherous and dangerous it is to be a woman who's seen, we don't really like them culturally. No, because how, it's Who does powerful. she think she is? Yes. How dare she? So I just walked right into that trap in my over-identification. <laughs> but also, I hear you because you said, you know, the Swiss Army knife tool or hardworking. And I very much felt that way about and feel this way about my book. How can I make it have, have value and I need it to work as hard as it can and to be fun. And, you know, I worked really hard to make it hardworking, ironically. But yeah, I, I actually kind of, I love that. Like now there's like, now there's more self-reflection upon like, why did I need to do that? Like, what was that impulse? Yeah. yeah. Well, and look, and I'm commending you for it, right? Like I recognize, <laughs> no, but it's like, oh, so of course you recognize yeah, I'm just like, I'm falling right into that trope of, thank you for writing such a hardworking memoir that attaches to so many other themes. And But also, um, I was like, oh, thank goodness someone saw that, because now I feel less <laughs> afraid that no one will care. I mean, we're just human beings. I mean, that's the thing. We're just human beings. And this is the air we breathe and the water we swim in. And... <laughs> Honestly, if we weren't if we weren't a little bit insecure, we'd be insufferable. So it's it's fine. It is good, but it is a balance. I mean, this is what the book, you know, this is what I think we're all after is this balance of recognizing these impulse, having these conversations where we're like, I recognize what's coming up in me, which is anxiety that someone's going to pick up this book with a big F, like who cares or who do you think you are or why did you think that this should be published and this armoring that we do instinctively around that. Oh, yeah. I mean, even the questions in the book are yeah. a sort of like, I am anticipating your, like, I am anticipating some readers' resistance or pressure mm. points or pushback. Mm. And I'm just like, well, I'm just going to nip that in the bud. And I'm going to answer my own questions. Yeah. In the book, like uh, I see where you're going and I will actually beat you there. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift. And over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. 
I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to FrameBridge to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. I want you to read a poem for us, but before that, let's just turn to sort of your kids because I thought this this part was really salient and beautiful too around, I think the title of this was Some People Ask, but you don't regret the marriage, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't have your children. People say this all the time. It's not even a question, really. It's a statement. They want confirmation. They want reassurance. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're thinking it now, reading this book, at least she has her children, or it was worth it for the children. And when people say this, I've paused for a moment. I'm thinking about the cost of answering fully. Yeah. And 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 honestly, the answer, I mean, you know, because you've read it, the answer changes. The, yeah. the answer early on in the writing of this book was I would t- I would I would undo all of it. Mm. I would undo all of it because, of course, if we rewind our lives back far enough before our marriage, before our children, we probably would be married to other people and have other children. And we wouldn't have we wouldn't be missing the children we don't know exist. Right. You know, I mean, if I think about it, if if this is a multiverse, if I'm thinking about it, then the version of me right now perhaps was rewound from some other re- relationship. And there are children I have that I don't, that I never met. So the idea that I would have, I think in my early grief and early, just like profound suffering, I wanted to feel better. And I would have taken everything back in order to not have suffered and also not to have had my kids suffer. In that Mm -hmm. way, I wanted to give us all a different outcome. And the Mm -hmm. only way to do that was to undo everything. And I, you know, spoiler alert, a little later in the book, come to a different feeling about it, which is Mm -hmm. no, actually, I want these two kids. And I suppose that it is it is worth whatever had to happen to get these two incredible, particular human beings into Mm -hmm. my into my life and for us to be a unit, but goodness, it's not easy to get there. 
Mm-mm. to that line of thinking. Yeah. No, it's not. I think whenever something sort of befalls us, I mean, it's the same thing if someone that you love dies and everyone says, well, aren't you so glad that you had that relationship for as long as you did? Or aren't you so glad that you were in each other's lives? And of course, the answer is always yes. The answer is never, no, I wish I'd never met this person because this hurts so much. Right. You know, or at least you wouldn't voice that. Right. I mean, that's just that's not how we live and think. And so I think that just is a testament to how much of the writing process for me was also about the thinking and feeling process. And I I land in the back third of the book in a different place Yeah, from the first third of the book. And I felt that deeply reading it aloud when I recorded the audio book. The first third of the book was was hard for me in a way that the last third of the book wasn't. And I can feel the the sort of energy and sort of rebounding in the back third. Did you revise the book a lot? Was the revision primarily with your editor or was it before you handed it in? The revision. So I actually worked, I had a friend of mine, Megan Steelstra, who is a terrific writer. I, I had Megan work with me on this book and I just reached out to her and I said, I'm, I'm doing this thing. I have like 50,000 pieces (laughs) Mm. how do you feel about working on a collage project with me that is actually a book and so we worked together on the individual pieces but primarily on the the sort of arc and the structuring and the sort of braiding of how of how it would be laid out so one example of something she suggested is in the original draft all of those questions a friend says every book begins with an unanswerable question. That was one chapter with a list of questions. Mm. And so Megan was like, actually, I think it's going to be more impactful if you let each of them, again, the white space, you let each of them have some breath and then they can kind of ping off of whatever text is immediately before them mm-hmm. and ping again off of whatever text immediately follows. So you can kind of live with that question a little bit more fully without just rushing on to the next one. And so we would get together on Zoom and kind of talk through, okay, so what's what's happening here? What do we need more of? What do we need less of? What needs to be clearer? What how's the balance? It was a really, you know, a, no no outlines. It was a very organic process. But the fact that you're a poet certainly comes through because the the quality of each piece, like each piece fight going back to this works hard or like each each piece really has a place. Nothing feels arbitrary, throwaway, or not fully considered. It's a totally different format. I'll, I'll be curious to see whether it doesn't inspire more people to do the same or to break format. I hope because so. I hope I so hope too. So. I really, I really liked it as an experience and being able to read a lot and then stop and then read a little and. It was it was a different pace and it lands with a lot of weight. Well, thank you. Yeah, I hope it gives permission to some other people to maybe try some, take some risks. Yes. Will you read Bride? Oh, sure. I know. I know. You're probably asked to read it all the time. No, no. I mean, I joke that that Good Bones is my free bird. So Bride would be like, I don't I don't know. What is Leonard Skinner's second biggest hit? <laughs> <laughs> I, I 
feel like I should be able to recall that. I, I feel like this is the part of the radio show. If this were a radio show where we take callers. <laughs> How long have I been wed to myself? Calling myself darling, dressing for my own pleasure. Each morning, choosing perfume to turn me on. How long have I been alone in this house, but not alone? Married less to the man than to the woman, silvering with the mirror. I know the kind of wife I need, and I become her. The one who will leave this earth at the same instant I do. I am my own bride, lifting the veil to see my face. Darling, I say, I have waited for you all my life. Coming back to this idea of nesting dolls, Maggie writes, how I picture it, our marriages are nesting dolls too. We carry each iteration, the marriage we had before the children, the marriage of love letters and late nights and dive bars and train rides through France, the marriage we had after the children, the marriage of tenderness but transactional communication, who's doing what and when and how, and early mornings and stroller walks and crayon on the walls and sunscreen that always needs to be reapplied, the marriage we had toward the end before we knew there was an end, the marriage of the silent treatment and couch sleeping and the occasional update email. Somewhere at the center is the tiniest doll, love, the love that started everything. It's still there, but we'd have to open and open and open ourselves, our together selves, to find it. I can't bear to think of it in there somewhere, the love, like the perfect pit of some otherwise rotten fruit. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. And it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout-out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valera Doval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. Thank you.